0: This is The Day That Changed Everything, a podcast series produced by Maine Biz, Maine's business news source. Every two weeks, we will post an interview with a Maine business leader whose life or business was upended in one day and learned how they navigated their way back. If all great changes are preceded by chaos, then this podcast series seeks to help us make sense of the chaos. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank, Maine Technology Institute or MTI, and Sutherland Weston. Mainers
1: have an unrivaled work ethic, an endless supply of ideas, a boundless energy to create, and the perseverance to not say it's done until it's done better than it was before. Which is why the Maine Technology Institute was created to support, nurture, and invest in those qualities and make Maine a place where ideas and people can thrive. To see how MTI supports innovation, go to maintechnology.org. That's maintechnology.org. Thank you for listening to the Maine Biz podcast, The Day That Changed Everything. I'm Andrea Tetzlaff with Maine Biz. Thank you for listening to our podcast, The Day That Changed Everything. Over the past six months, Maine Biz has talked with business leaders from around Maine about challenges they faced, how they overcame dramatic changes, and lessons they learned. Their stories have been inspirational. Now, as we close out the year, we've asked our podcast interviewers, senior writers Maureen Milliken and Renee Cordes, digital editor Will Hall, and publisher Donna Brassard to take a look back on those podcasts and talk about what they learned from interviewing our guests, what impressed them, and examine how a day that changes everything can truly be an opportunity for great things to come. First up we'll hear from senior writer Maureen Milliken talking about the interviews that had the most effect on her.
2: People are generally good and they want to help each other and when given the opportunity they will and it's made me reflect on ways to give people the opportunity to do better without necessarily involving a tragedy.
3: Hi, this is Maureen Milliken. Um, It's easy with these podcasts to get caught up in the dramatic moments, particularly with the two interviews I did. Topher Mallory of Split Rock Distilling talked about how within days of the COVID-19 shutdown in March, his business switched from making bourbon to making hand sanitizer, which was quite a change. Daryl Wood, Executive Director of Leap Incorporated had to rebuild a business, both figuratively and literally, when a natural gas explosion on September 16, 2019, leveled Leap's main office in Farmington. It killed one firefighter and severely injured six others, including Leap employee Larry Lord. The dramatic moments radically different are striking and memorable, no doubt, but in a year with a lot of bad news, negativity, and bad feelings, one thing that really struck me in both of my interviews was the connection to the community at large and how instrumental that was in helping with what came after the day that changed everything for these two businesses. In the case of Split Rock Distilling, which is in Newcastle, when they started making hand sanitizer, the first order of business was to get supplies. They needed glycerin and hydrogen peroxide. Split Rock's map page drove around the state buying glycerin. Hydrogen peroxide, though, is harder to find. And here's what Topher Mallory had to say about what happened next.
4: As I called pharmacies and grocers, I couldn't find it anywhere. This was definitely something that got hoarded, maybe not as much mm. as toilet paper right. or uh, rubbing alcohol, but it was nowhere to be found. And it dawned on me at some point that I had seen it in Rennie's. And I know Adam Rennie and Mary-Kate and John, and their warehouse is only a mile or so as the crow flies from our distillery on Route 1. So I called them. They were also closed at this point. And the Rennie's family literally drove around personally and pulled off of store shelves anything and everything they had. And in late March, when it was nearly impossible to get anything bulk, we had pallets of peroxide and it was an incredible partnership and they still sell our sanitizer in store which makes it available to a broader audience which has been a neat sort of final chapter of this hopefully.
3: You'd think it'd be harder for Daryl Wood at Leap to find that feel good aspect and what happened there. The newly built offices of the organization, which provides support services to disabled adults was literally flattened by the gas explosion. Larry Lord, their maintenance man, had evacuated the employees in the building before the explosion. That was something that they had practiced, standard operating procedure, and he was leading firefighters to the source of the leak when the explosion happened. Lord was severely injured, and Leap also had to find a new home and rebuild. Wood credits the organization's employees with being professional and focused, which allowed him to handle the huge variety of issues, big and small, that came with the explosion's aftermath. Wood said knowing he had employees he could count on was a big key to moving forward. He said too the same thing was true of the community at large. Farmington and the region surrounding it is a small community. The town, the biggest in Franklin County, has 8,000 people. Everyone has a connection and a lot of people in the area had a connection to Leap Incorporated. Wood talks about how his daughter drove by Leap shortly after the explosion and didn't know for some time whether he'd been in the building when it happened. He adds that many, many people in the area had the same experience because of all the close connections. But those connections also helped with the
2: healing. I've always thought we live in a a pretty special community up here, but uh, the, the upsides, I guess, are that everybody has learned just how valuable our public safety officials and first responders are it was amazing to me that some of these people had to get up and go to work the next day and in fact some of that work might be responding to a propane leak at a at a different building so the fact that one year later 99.9% of the communications that i've had from any community member including organizations and businesses and the whole first provider community random people on the street has been positive and supported has in a lot of ways renewed my faith
3: the topics and in interviews with topher mallory and daryl wood were very very different but there were similarities too and the biggest similarity came down to that community connection at the time of the interviews. When I listened to them later, and then when I re-listened before recording this episode, I got chills, and that's something that does not happen to me a lot in the course of a workday. The importance of community that they both stressed was really remarkable, and it really brought, I felt, a lot of the emotion. And I grew up in Maine, and I've always felt this, but almost daily at Maine Biz, I see the evidence, or I'm told, about how special Maine is because of how close-knit a community it is, and how those ties help businesses and people throughout the state. And hearing these two very different stories just underlines that fact, that even when the worst things happen, the bottom line is that Maine is a community of good people who want to help, and that businesses know that their community has their back. And I can't think of a better message to end 2020 with.
0: This is Jennifer Cook of Norway Savings Asset Management Group. Here, we believe in family asset management. Simply put, it means we do right by you and your loved ones. And it's not necessarily the size of the portfolio we care about. It's the story behind it, a story that's unique to you. Let us help you write your next chapter. For more information, visit norwaysavings.bank.
2: Investment products are not FDIC insured, not guaranteed by the bank and may lose value. Shark Tank was a platform to share our business. It does not make you an overnight success, does not make you a millionaire. Everyone thinks these reality shows do that overnight. Oftentimes it's the opposite, puts a target on your back. But it was a platform to share our story and our business with 9 million people. So we kind of said, well, listen, let's do it.
5: Hi, I'm Renee Cordes with Maine Bids. You just heard a clip from my interview with Jim Salikas, co-founder of Cousins Maine Lobster. That was one of my favorite episodes with some great insights into how two cousins from Maine started a food truck business in California selling lobster from Maine. I love the fact that they hatched the idea over having a few drinks, reminiscing about fond childhood memories, and that they went full speed ahead starting this business from scratch. You really get a good sense from Jim about how daunting this whole venture was, leaving a well-paying, secure job for him moving from the East to the West Coast, getting rejected time after time for a bank loan until it worked out, and then they could start a business. Then, that absolutely crazy first frantic day of business when they arrived with the truck. 75 customers already in line when they got there about 45 minutes late. Ten people working on the food truck that day. They didn't even have a cash register with them. Already sounds like a gripping opening for some feature film. And if I were directing, I would maybe cast a young Leonardo DiCaprio and John Cusack. Then the next gripping chapter, the day that really changed everything, when Jim and his cousin Sabin and his business partner agreed to go on the TV show, Shark Tank, and pitch their business, kind of like a big budget green light made. Funny that they turned down the producers at first, then decided to go ahead with it. As Jim said, to share their story with 9 million viewers and share the story of cousins Maine lobster and what their home state is all about. They really prepared to the hilt, targeting their pitch to actually one specific chart, namely Barbara Corporan. They shot the episode in an hour and landed Barbara as an investor. It's not an easy thing to do to bring in a new partner into a brand new business at that time, but it's worked out well for them. And Jim talks about how they benefited from Barbara's marketing and know-how and how they were also open to her great ideas. I also love the lessons that Jim shares at the end, especially what he says about preparation, like he learned from his old hockey coach, and also learning to be fearless like they did on Shark Tank, literally taking the plunge. And lastly, he shares a thought about believing in yourself as well as having humility, and I think those are good lessons for anybody in business and in life. And now we're gonna hear a short clip from Zach Poole, which is from episode four.
4: The more and more I thought of it, and I said, you know what, if, if I'm gonna take the main brew bus to the next level, not only the main side of things, but myself as a business owner uh, to the next level, I decided that I did need some help.
5: So that was Zach Poole, founder of the main brew bus, from episode four, another business on wheels, coincidentally, with a compelling story of how it started and how it's grown, and very recently brought in a new business partner. In this case, the business was founded by an out-of-stater who moved to Maine, but someone who also got into his industry by chance. As for the business that Zach started in 2012, He said he was looking for something to do, noticed at that time there was no company taking customers to local breweries in Portland. I also love his story about talking to his wife about buying a bus to do that over a few beers as it turned out. So another common theme with Cousins Maine Lobster. Today they've got four buses and normally run seven days a week, but of course these are not normal times. They've had to adapt big time during COVID. And for the main brew bus, the day that changed everything happened at the very start of COVID when they brought in a new business partner from Australia. Interestingly, Zach did not set out to look for a new partner. He talks about the brew bus at that time being in a sweet spot. But, similar to Cousins Maine lobster, he decided to go for it and take his business to the next level with a new partner. His name was Dave Phillips, someone with a background in international tourism and someone that he had come to trust and get along with and had a good chemistry with. So they signed the paperwork on March 12, at the very start of the virus outbreak. Not an ideal time, you would think, to embark on a new venture with a new partner and with so much uncertainty in the world. But Zach was also very excited about long-term possibilities to grow and take his business in new directions, or as he nicely put it, think outside the bus. Also kind of scary, bringing in a partner now owning 50% of a business that. He grew from scratch, but Zach said he was confident. It was the right move. And he also said it was good to have some pressure on himself not to let the new partner down. So good and scary at the same time. So a lot of similar themes to the Cousins main lobster experience with Barbara Corcoran and bringing in a partner with complementary know-how to take a startup to the next level.
0: Thanks, Renee, for sharing your impression experience from talking to those very impressive young people who've got those great businesses on wheels. This is Donna Broussard. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about my thoughts about this year's podcasts. When we decided to do A Day That Changed Everything, we didn't necessarily mean a bad day that changed everything. We had good days that changed everything, but the ones that I want to talk about today are The ones where we actually did have a bad day, when a bad day happened and changed everything with these businesses. And what impressed me so much was the not give up attitude that many of them expressed. Failure was not an option for them. And I was just so taken by that. And I want to share some of those words with you. First of all, the women from the main cancer center, when faced with the dilemma of having to do a virtual triathlon, how do you do a virtual triathlon? In talking with them, when I even broached the subject, if they could possibly even consider canceling, here's what that sounded like. I'm going to say a hard no on that. Okay. Um, A hard no comes from cancer doesn't stop, so we couldn't stop. There you go. Uh, We had to find a way to support the programs that we've supported in the past by all the funds that are raised by our event. So people that have cancer in this state of Maine were looking forward to (laughs) the money going back into the, the community, and we needed to support that. Somebody else who wouldn't take failure as an option was Katie Shorey with Startup Maine. Their executive director had confessed to uh, sexual harassment, left the organization. Uh, the organization then lost a big grant that they were expecting. The organization was essentially volunteers. I don't think anybody would have batted an eye if they had canceled the, the not only the event, but just dissolved the, uh, the nonprofit. But... Katie wouldn't have it. And they moved fast and moved quickly and moved confidently in order to make it happen. And uh, here's how she tells that story.
5: This team knew the ins and outs of the conference, even though the the co-founder was stepping down and we severed ties, we made that very clear. We also knew what needed to go in to make this conference happen. So we just made the decision, okay, if we're gonna forge ahead, What do we need to do and what are the pieces that need to happen first so we can make this thing happen?
0: And one of our recent podcasts, I think, is is so apt to share her story right now. Emily Kane, who ran for the United States uh, legislature in 2014, was supposed to win. She went to bed that night after election thinking she won. Um, Everybody telling her that she was supposed to win, that she had won and she didn't. And how, to, how she faced that loss. And how she faced that loss with class, with humbleness, and with a great attitude, I think, is a lesson for many of us uh, to learn. And her thoughts that day, right after she lost the election, were amazing. And I think everybody should learn from this experience. And here's what she had to say about having to speak to the press the morning after she lost an election that she should have won.
6: And I went down to the lobby and there were members of the press there with microphones and cameras. And I was wearing jeans and a sweater and I'm pretty sure my hair was in a ponytail. And I did not have a planned statement. I never had to give a concession speech on TV because it was the middle of the night when it got called. And the most the most important thing that happened next was... My, my campaign manager said, if you don't want to talk to them, you don't have to. And I said, no, of course I want to talk to them. I mean, I, I've always had a good relationship with the press. And I went over and one of the reporters said to me, Emily, you've lost this election. What are you going to do next? And I remembered I just said the first thing that came to mind, which was, well, I woke up yesterday caring about the future of the state of Maine, and I woke up today caring about the same thing. So I'm going to do something that has to do with that. And I left Good answer. And I, I remember I got in the car to go home and I remember laughing and saying, I'm okay. I, because the thing is, when you're in it for the right reasons, when you're not in it for the title, right, when you're not in it for the glamour, and let me newsflash to everyone who's listening, running for office and serving in office is not glamorous. I can tell you I've done both for a while. You have to be in it for the work, for the things you care
0: about, and then whether you win or lose, you're going to be okay. And finally, I want to talk about the gills. Brigitte and, and Jim. Brigitte had a terrible a spinal injury when riding a bikes with her kids. It completely upended their lives, their business. And when I asked them, you know, what they've learned from that, she's, she's doing fine now. Their business has continued. They've figured out a way to cope. And when I asked them about how they could, you know, what was the lesson they learned? What could they share with other people? Jim talked about the thing that we have to understand is that there are many things that are going to happen in our lives and in our business that we can't predict, COVID being an example of one of those, and how we need to respond to crises and not react to crises. And I thought that was really great advice for all of us, no matter what, especially given coping with the pandemic. And, and here's what Jim had to say.
7: The, the adversity, you know, and turn it to your advantage, not necessarily Look at that because if you get down and get focused on what's wrong and what you can't control, then it's just going to take you into places that are never going to be helpful. Um, this virus is one of them. COVID-19 is one of them. We can't control any that's going on right now. We have to take it for what it is, but we have to look for ways to do what we can to diversify. And We're looking to diversify our camp portfolio, meaning that maybe we need to look at you running year round and running different groups and different things like that, instead of just focusing on the summer where it may not be a possibility. And that's all comes from over years of experience. You know, like you, you have to like take each day and as things change and I always, I, and, and I know in the media, they love the word, the reaction of someone. That is not a word we allow at camp. We don't react to camp, especially as leaders. We respond. Our response is a thoughtful, planned out, action that you do next uh reaction is what you usually do from an emotional level and when you're emotionally charged you don't usually make good decisions so i hate that word reaction facebook uses it this media uses it everywhere their reaction and i was like oh, could be response if you wanted to put it in there <laughs> so anyway so you have to respond and that's respond and that's what we did
4: Remember why you went into business? You can say to fulfill a dream or change the world, but I'll bet the real reason you went into business was to make money. So, how are you doing? And would you like to do better? Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications has been helping main businesses better do what they were built to do make money by reaching audiences, catching eyes and ears, and helping them make the sale. Worth a phone call? Find Sutherland Weston Marketing Communications online at SutherlandWeston.com.
8: Hello, my name is Will Hall and I'm the digital editor at MainBiz. And when I think about some of the great conversations we've had with the state's business and nonprofit leaders, one thing that really stands out is how openly they've shared their stories. A lot of these folks have talked about extremely difficult professional and personal challenges, and I think it says something good about Maine business that these leaders have been so frank and transparent. CEOs in general tend to be pretty guarded about stuff like this. So I was especially struck by the candor of two whom I interviewed, Ben Wolin of Covetris Incorporated, and Sean Moody, the founder of Moody's Collision Centers. Let me single out Ben. The business he leads, Covetris, is an animal health company that provides services and technology to veterinary practices around the world. It's Maine's largest public company with annual revenues of almost $4 billion. And at this point, uh, nearly 6,000 employees, including 300 in Portland. CoVetrus was formed in February, 2019 from the merger of two other companies, Vets First Choice in Portland and a division of a public company based in New York. But Covetris ran into some big challenges during its first year. Nearly the entire senior leadership team changed, including the two founders, David Shaw and Benjamin Shaw, who resigned from their positions as chairman and CEO, respectively. There was an investor lawsuit alleging fraud. The stock price plummeted. The challenges were compounded by the fact that the New York business that was part of the merger, a unit of Henry Shine Incorporated, was basically a holding company with 30 separate businesses underneath it. Ben Wolin joined the Covetris board in October, 2019 in the midst of the shakeup and six weeks later became CEO. Since then, he's been working to build Covetris and integrate the various businesses into a cohesive whole. And it seems as as if he and his team have had some success, but Ben spoke pretty openly about the challenges Covetris has faced. Here's a little soundbite of him talking about the reaction he got when he came on board. I think it's natural, especially for a business that's gone
9: through or an organization that's gone through a turbulent time. I mean, you're gonna get everything from you know optimism to pessimism and and truthfully that's fine a lot of it is about what you do and what you say and can you drive change inside the business so i didn't fault anybody for their their perspective i just needed people to keep an open mind to trying to do things differently
8: what were your feelings about stepping in this way did you feel excited was it something you found really daunting
9: you know, it's both invigorating and daunting at the same time. You're excited by all the possibility and, and you see tons of opportunity. And then you're also overwhelmed by just the sheer magnitude of the things that has to happen. And, and some of the things that you assumed were happening aren't happening at all. And you kind of, at first 90 or 120 days, every week there's some new things. Some of them are good and some of them are bad. And you're like, I, I can't believe XYZ was happening. But again, I, I kind of expected that. You don't know where it's going to come from. You just you, you just know what's going to happen. But it, it's, like I said, I think it's both exciting and, you know, a bit
8: nerve-wracking at the same time. Ben was also very open about how daunting the challenges were for him personally. Although he'd previously founded and led a public company, a healthcare technology company, he had his work cut out for him at Covetris going from a a new board member where he basically was providing oversight to the CEO, or as as he said, you know, the driver with his hands on the steering wheel of a $4 billion company in six weeks is no mean feat. And he explained how urgent the situation was in this part of our conversation. The
9: first day I got there after the first day, I, I sat down with uh, the head of HR, global head of HR, and I told him, you know, here's my plan. I'm going to go and I'm going to listen to as many people, not going to make any rash decisions. In three months, I'm going to come back, you know, with a plan uh, to the board, and then we'll, we'll get some feedback on it. We'll start executing against it. And then after day two, I sat down with the same person. I was like, you know, I think, you know, I have some ideas. It's probably gonna have to move a little bit faster. There's some bigger problems here. Give me a month and I'll come up with my plan. And then I think by the end of week one, I think I said, all right, there's some big issues here and I need to move fast. I really cannot wait. We're going to start doing stuff today. So it wasn't exactly one day, but I would say over, over a 72 hour period, I, I, my, my thinking evolved a lot. And, and the, I, I, probably the biggest change was just the sense of urgency and speed with which I needed to act.
8: Ben also admitted that some of the things Covetris has tried to do since his arrival have been failures. And I thought that was pretty unusual for uh, a CEO to come out and, and admit. Here's one example that he mentioned.
9: We had one line of business that we were very excited about. It seemed so obvious. We just needed to focus on it and push it hard. And, you know, we, we did that it's still not succeeding at the level that we thought it should be. We thought it'd be a lot easier. And so, you know, what you might've chalked up to towards, Hey, the company's just not focused. You don't have enough resources. Hey, there's actually a market impediment, you know, that you need to go solve. And it wasn't about your people or your organizational structure It was actually about the asset that you had. So that always happens in business. It's really about how you, how you adapt to it. That makes you successful.
8: I really think it's unusual for a CEO to be so open about stuff like this, especially the CEO of a public company. Of course, uh, transparency is a buzzword in business today, but Ben and Sean and the other business leaders we've talked with seem to be taking that value pretty seriously. And I think that's a good thing. I'd like to see more of it.
1: Thank you, Donna, Maureen, Will, and Renee, for sharing your thoughts on these stories, and thank you to everyone who shared their stories with us this year. We appreciate everyone listening to the day that changed everything, and we're looking forward to 2021 when we have very interesting stories to share with you, including Joan Fortin on completing her first year since being named the first female CEO at the law firm Bernstein Shure, Gary Merrill of Hussey Seating is going to talk about his experience as the first non-family member to take control of a generations-old family-run business. And Devin McNeil of Flowfold will tell us what happened when they shifted their manufacturing facility from making outdoor gear to PPE at the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. Please subscribe, rate, and review The Day That Changed Everything on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you to our sponsors Norway Savings Bank, MTI, and Sutherland Weston. Thank you for listening.
0: This has been a production of Maine Biz. Find out more about this podcast and other Maine Biz Media products at Mainbiz.biz. The Day That Changed Everything is sponsored by Norway Savings Bank, Maine Technology Institute, or MTI, and Sutherland Weston. The Maine Biz podcast team includes Renee Cortes, Will Hall, Maureen Milliken, Allison Nason, Andrea Tetzlaff, and Donna Broussard. Audio editor and producer is Chris Sedenka. Logo and marketing designer is Matt Selva. The Main Biz podcast team also thanks Peter Van Allen, Betsy Vanderplug, Ken Hansen for their contributions. Subscribe to the Main Biz podcast at mainbiz.biz or via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Copyright 2020.